Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All right, Kellen, after the trauma of last week and your poor performance, your zero out of 10 with the pop mythologist and the media that you had consumed that he mentioned, how are you feeling? How are you recovering after that? You know, honestly, not too bad. I feel like I perpetually get to be the guy who says, oh, well, I've only recently learned about collapse. And even years from now, as we continue this podcast, there's so much to talk about. And yet, after all of the conversations, all the things I've learned, the things that I've researched and even taught, I think I will continually use that excuse that, hey, I'm newer to this than other people like you, Corey. So it's not that big of a deal if I'm less tuned in to some aspect of it. Yeah, but I mean, come on. Like, everybody has seen Don't Look Up at this point. And no matter how new you are to Collapse, that movie is much newer. Yeah, I don't know why I have this feeling like maybe it's just a sense of control when everyone else has seen that movie, I kind of like that I still haven't. I mean, you told me all about it, so I feel like I know the whole plot, a lot of the details. Yeah, I'm sure I did it justice. It's like watching it, me explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I will say this. This week, we're 
doing this episode on mass migrations. And I've been thinking about kind of worst case scenario, what I would picture. And obviously this is an extreme example. I wouldn't expect anything to look like this, but I did think of the movie War of the Worlds. And I'm not talking about the old one. I've seen them both, but the newer one, the one with Tom Cruise that came out, what, 10, 15 years ago? There are some scenes from that movie that are so anxiety-inducing. If you've seen it, there's one part where there's a huge crowd of people that are panicked, and they're trying to get from one point to another. They get ripped out of their car because they're the only ones who have a working car, and then they're trying to crowd onto this ferry boat, and it is just like a scene from a nightmare. And so I don't think that's going to be the case But it does make me realize the pop culture we consume has a major effect on our perception of things. And stories like that do help us to kind of frame the world around us and give meaning and purpose. So anyways, curious to hear your thoughts on that, Corey. Well, and it's funny that you say that because you say, you know, obviously it's never going to be like that. And I think, yeah, obviously it's never going to be like people cramming themselves onto a ferry trying to escape these alien robot thingies that are trying to kill them, right? But we saw these images just this last summer of crowds of people escaping the fires in Greece on a ferry, right? And there's video of them watching this fire, like overtaking their towns as they're getting away on on a ferry boat. And you talking about that scene from the movie just recalled that memory of that to me. And I'm sure there will be plenty of examples of people fleeing in the future, situations that are just that dire, right? And they are just as panicked about leaving, whether it's a, a robot shooting lasers at you or you know, wet bulb temperatures, wildfires, or numerous other things. Yeah, this last year, I feel like I saw so many images and videos of large groups of people hiking through like waist deep water as they're trying to get out of a flooded area. And so, yeah, you're right. There will be extreme examples like that. I also think about all the migrants from Haiti this last year. There were a handful of reasons people were fleeing the country, A big part of it was major earthquake that took place. There was the assassination of Haiti's president and all of the political issues there. There was the fact that people couldn't really get by. Not only in many cases were their homes destroyed, but the economy, there just really wasn't a way for many people to make ends meet. So I think about all the images and videos of these people making their way to a variety of Central American countries. But when they got to the U.S., Corey, do you remember the people chasing them on horseback? So yeah, maybe it's not aliens, but it could be humans on horses that are chasing you as you're trying to flee to a better situation. And, you know, that's not necessarily any less scary, depending on who's chasing you and the danger to your family in that case. Okay, so like we mentioned, we're going to be talking about mass migrations, and it's kind of surprising that we haven't discussed this yet in detail. We've mentioned it here and there across a couple of different episodes, but I think we will have not only this episode, but episodes in the future to talk about this because there's so much to talk about. It's very relevant to all aspects of collapse because many factors of collapse will cause mass migrations and those mass migrations will accelerate other aspects of collapse and will cause bigger problems for the system as a whole. Yeah. When I think of the future, mass migrations are one of the things that terrify me most. Because like you said, they are a consequence 
of a lot of the threats of collapse, so climate change, political violence, all those types of things, but they're also a cause of collapse. It's a positive feedback loop. And just the potential for large-scale disaster and conflict coming from mass migration is huge. And so, like you said, I'm also sort of surprised that we haven't talked about it in depth up to this point, because I, I do think it's going to be critically important in the coming years and decades. Great. So I think it's worthwhile here at the beginning of this conversation to talk through a couple of definitions. And there's a lot of confusion around some of the terms that get used. So I think it's worth clearing that up. So when we say mass migrations, mass migration refers to the migration of large groups of people from one geographical area to another. It's as simple as that. So a, a migrant is a person who moves from one place to another especially in order to find work or better living conditions. So when you talk about somebody who is a migrant, they could be moving just from one town to the next or from one state to the next. But when you talk about an immigrant or immigration, that is the action of coming to live permanently in a foreign country. So mass migration, then, from what you're saying, could be a large group of people moving from Texas to Oklahoma, for example. It doesn't have to be between countries. There can be internal mass migrations as well. Yeah, in fact, I was taking a look at a 2008 report from the IOM, which is the International Organization for Migration. And near the beginning of their report, they list several different terms and what abbreviations they will be using in the report. One of those terms is internally displaced person. And so that's used to refer to somebody who's displaced within a given country and they have to move somewhere else within that same country. Okay, so we've mentioned what it means to be a migrant, an immigrant. You'll also hear the term emigrant, right, starting with the letter E. And that is a person who leaves their own country in order to settle permanently in another. That might be confusing because that sounds like an immigrant, but it's the same way we talk about imports and exports. If you're talking about people coming into the U.S., you'd say they are immigrating into the U.S. If you're talking about people leaving the U.S. to go to a different country, you'd say they're emigrating. Another term that gets used a lot is refugee, and that is a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. So not everybody who moves within their country or even out to another country is forced to do so. And that's the distinction between somebody who might be a refugee and somebody who's not. There's also the term asylum seeker, which is a person who has left their home country as a political refugee and is seeking asylum in another. And what does it mean to seek asylum? That, that just means you're seeking protection, and that might include, you know, seeking shelter or support, but you're going to a nation or an entity seeking their protection. So those are kind of the broad terms when it comes to like refugee and asylum seeker. But many countries, including the U.S., use those terms with a more of a legal definition. So like if you are somebody who is illegally crossing a border, then you are immigrating into that country. And yes, they might be leaving their country of origin to escape persecution or whatever. So under that definition, they would be a refugee. But legally and politically, when we talk about refugees and asylum seekers, we're talking about people who flee their home and actually have to apply for refugee status with the government of the country that they're trying to enter. Or depending on what they're running away from, they can file 
an application or pass what's called a credible fear screening in order to receive a hearing or an interview in an attempt to be accepted in receiving asylum. So we don't need to get into all the legal details there, but one source states if they apply for protection from abroad and are granted protection, they're considered refugees. If they apply for protection from within the destination country and are granted protection, they're considered asylees. And oftentimes, those trying to obtain refugee status have to wait for years in refugee camps while their application gets processed. And usually, those refugee camps have absolutely horrible living conditions. So I think a a big reason that you're bringing this up and kind of explaining the differences there is to show that migration is not easy. And I think we all kind of know that already. We've heard all the stories of people who are trying to gain citizenship in a country or even just be in a country legally. And there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of rules around migration and being able to move from one country to another. And that's as things stand today. And obviously, we'll be discussing soon the pressures that are increasing and the pressures we expect in the future around migration. But when you have a certain level of bureaucracy, especially one that you expect to increase over time that can really complicate and slow down the process of of keeping these sort of migrations running smoothly. Yeah, thank you for stating that because I think that's exactly what I'm hoping to prove with these definitions. And there is so much bureaucracy and there's rules and regulations, laws. You know, if somebody is trying to seek refugee status, there's certain things that would qualify them for that and certain things that wouldn't. Like, for example, we might allow asylum for persecution or violence, but like environmental displacement isn't a reason they allow for. So if I'm in a country with rising sea levels that are making it so where I live is uninhabitable and I try to come to the U.S. and seek refugee status for that, there's no allowance for that in current policy. Another reason why I think it's so important to mention all this is to make the point that there is a broad spectrum and on one end you've got forced migration and on the other end you've got voluntary migration. So an extreme example of forced migration would be like the slave trade, right? The slave trade was such a horrible thing in which human beings were basically treated like product. They were loaded up and shipped in large numbers to other parts of the world. That was considered a mass migration, but those that were migrating didn't have a choice in the matter. Another example is Nazis sending millions of Jews to concentration camps. You know, just Auschwitz had 1.3 million Jews sent there, of whom 960,000 died in that camp. So there are definitely some terrible examples of completely forced migrations. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got migrations that are completely voluntary. One example of that is the California gold rush. So in just a few years, starting in 1848, it reached its peak in 1852, more than 300,000 people came to the California territory. And it wasn't because they were being forced to. Everyone was just all excited that they had discovered gold there. And yeah, there might have been some people in the mix who felt like it was necessary to even survive. But for most people, they were what would be considered an economic migrant, which is somebody who leaves their place of origin purely for financial and economic reasons. 
So with all of that, although people love to visit foreign countries, as a general rule, people want to live in their native country. If there are large groups of people moving from one country to another, you can almost guarantee that it's more on the forced side than on the voluntary side. Not necessarily because anyone is telling them that they have to, but they might have to just to survive. You know, sometimes people are running from something. Sometimes people are running to something. In all cases, it's a bit of both, but often it's more the former than the latter. So beyond understanding that there's a whole spectrum of voluntary and forced, it's also important to understand that there's usually a lot of factors at play. You can't just say, here's the one reason this person moved from this place to this place. For example, a lot of people have left the state of California recently, and there's typically not just one reason. It might be that they've got family in other parts of the country. A lot of people are saying it's too high of a cost of living here. I can go somewhere else and afford a much cheaper home. They might be fed up with all the wildfires. They might be fed up with politics or the high taxes, or they don't like that it's so crowded. Or they might be saying, hey, now remote work is a really common thing. The company that I work for allows me to live wherever I want. So now I'm going to go live somewhere else. So all of those combine to give us the cause of why a lot of people have left that state. I think about, you know, I spent years of my life living in a foreign country. I lived in Mexico and there were some people that I knew there that wanted to come to the U.S. and it was just because they had family living in the U.S. Whereas other people were working as hard as they could to try to save up, but they just didn't have the opportunity that they saw possible in the U.S. Others were tired of so much crime and the high crime rates and the fact that they were under numerous threats from all the drug cartels in the area. They were fleeing or hoping to flee simply as a matter of safety. So as you're listening to this, you might think to yourself, what would have to happen in order for me to just up and leave my home? And I think it's worth noting that anybody who has to make that decision is going to be affected by the costs, right? Like the cost of transportation, it's not typically cheap to up and move somewhere, especially if you want to do so in comfortable conditions. You might be thinking about all of the risks, right? People from Haiti that were trying to get to the U.S. were under attack from gangs and there were a lot of awful things happening like rape and people being robbed and so many challenges along the way. There's also barriers like borders, right? And the fact that you might get to the country that you want to arrive at and they won't let you in. So I try to give all of that as just a general foundation for what we're talking about when we talk about mass migrations and some of the factors at play. Yeah, I'm glad you laid that groundwork because it kind of helps set the foundation for what is really going on with migration. What are some of the, the difficulties that can come up as people try to migrate? I think when people think of migration and, and mass migration in the future, specifically, you know, collapse where people, when they think about this, they're envisioning the people on the ferry trying to escape all at once really fast. When in reality, um, migration is already happening. There are mass migrations that have happened in the past that we'll talk about in just a second. But it's also just an ongoing issue that's going to just continually get worse. A really obvious example of a mass migration that many people will know about and, and remember, it's one that's actually still a crisis, is from Syria. You know, Syria's population maxed out somewhere between 21 and 23 million, depending on the source you use, in 2010. But within a decade, 13 and a half million people were displaced, 6.8 of them outside of Syria and another 6.7 within Syria. 
So that's nearly a third of the population that left the country altogether and another third that were forced out of their homes and moved to a different part of the country. And this all began because of the Syrian civil war and sort of the recognized start date for that was March 15th, 2011. And this was uh, around the time of the Arab Spring, which came about for several different reasons, political, you know, anti-corruption protests, but also a big reason was food costs were going up, which I find interesting as a side note because we're seeing a lot of that happen right now again. But I bring those things up to show that, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different factors that happen with mass migration. It's not necessarily one thing that causes it. It's a, a complex group of factors. In this case, you know, other countries in the Middle East were more successful in their revolutions. Syria, though, fell into this civil war. The Syrian civil war is used a lot to describe what people think a civil war in the U.S. or other parts of the world would look like in that there is a lot of different factions fighting for power. It's not just two teams battling it out, right? There's proxy wars with nations supplying defense and backup and, and things to different factions. And I'd be lying if I said that I understood it all and, and the complexities there. But what I do know is that it affected Syrians greatly and they were forced to leave. More than 80% of Syrians live in extreme poverty on less than $1.90 a day. But the reason we bring up this example isn't to talk so much about what happened, but more about the effects that that migration had on neighboring countries and how countries reacted to it from further away. So the majority of those 6.8 million refugees that left Syria stayed in the Middle East in neighboring countries. So Turkey had nearly 4 million, Lebanon around a million, Jordan something like 700,000. And in my ignorance, when I first heard those numbers, you know, a decade ago as it was happening, I think naive me thought like, oh, it's the Middle East, you know, it's kind of all the same. That was very, um, the me that didn't understand the, the world as the way that it is. But when you really look at it, going from Syria to Jordan or Syria to Lebanon or Syria to Turkey, there are a lot of differences between those countries. One expert on the topic in Lebanon was quoted as saying, Wherever you go, in every single corner of Lebanon, there are refugees. They are scattered all over, not in one place. This crisis is affecting all of Lebanon. It is a population of 4 million, and you are adding more than a million. That means one in five people are refugees. In some towns, the population has doubled. This has been putting a lot of pressure on health services, educational services, waste management is not enough to cope. If you talk to Lebanese, many say they have lost their jobs because Syrians are willing to work for less, or that they have been evicted because Syrians share housing with many people and so can afford rents that Lebanese cannot. If you talk to Syrians, they say that some Lebanese have started to say that they deserve what's happening to them. So it's this huge difference culturally, but also just a large burden for the economy and for the culture of the people that are receiving the refugees. And the one thing that really just impacts me so much with the idea of mass migration is that it is a lose, lose, lose situation all around. The people leaving their country would do everything that they could to stay if it was a possibility. And you mentioned that, that leaving is not a light choice. They're leaving most likely because they're forced to. The people who are receiving them may have open arms and be willing, at least at first, to help out. But the burdens that are placed on that population are real. You can't double the size of a town and not have severe economic impact, severe impacts to the labor market, issues with supply and demand, the cultural issues that come up from that, issues with infrastructure. You know, one of these articles I was reading was talking about how the school system 
really struggled in Lebanon. Kids felt like the teachers were focusing too much on the Syrian students because the Syrian students were behind. They may not have been to school for a few years because the Civil War had affected their ability to go to school. But that was in turn also making the Lebanon students fall behind and say, you know, that they felt like they were in a Syrian school system. So in Turkey, same thing. Turkey had the most refugees, 4 million, but there's a lot of religious and ethnic linguistic issues there. Turkey was one of the most welcoming of Syrian refugees, but it's been shown that they were not aware of the impact of what was going to happen, of how many were going to be coming over the border. They expected something in maybe the tens of thousands, which turned into 100,000, into a million, into 4 million. And they tried many times to close off borders to stop it from happening, which caused other problems. You know, there were, like you said, camps created, refugee camps to house people. But then you have places like Europe, where many countries responded with an increase in nationalism and basic refusal of migrants. In the end, there was something like a million migrants that did make it into Europe. But many European countries flat out refused to help at all. Primarily Eastern European countries, Hungary, you know, the, the public discourse, and there were surveys done, polls done, and it was like 80% of people saying that we should not let any Syrians into our country, you know, maybe 15% that said we should let some in. And those numbers aren't exactly accurate, but it was something like that. It was it was pretty drastic. And to interrupt quickly, I think it's interesting that, you know, we've got people throughout the world who tune in to this podcast and probably everybody listening can relate to some degree. They understand the issues that come with immigration into whatever country they live in across the board almost no matter where you live, you see that there is extreme prejudice against immigrants coming into your country. You see the issues with them speaking a different language and coming with a different culture and maybe different values. You see how panicked people get and how critical they are as they're facing those burdens that you're highlighting. And so I think about all the issues at the border in the U.S. and the constant debate about what the right approach to immigration is. But the U.S. isn't singular in having that issue. In Mexico, there was a lot of the same prejudice against people coming from other Central American countries, a lot of anger towards those people and the fact that they were taking away jobs or they were causing other issues. I hear about it from countries in Europe. You highlight it here with this mass migration from Syria. And so there's no doubt that this is already a significant issue globally. And I think that's why it's such a terrifying premise for me is because you, know, you said there's so many different ideas about what the right approach is to immigration. And I don't know what the right approach to immigration is. And I don't think anybody does. Right now, we don't have immigration problems when compared to what the future is going to be. You know, everything with Syria, the U.S. ended up taking like 18,000 Syrian refugees, I think, which is nothing really compared to the 13 million that were displaced. And when you compare that to the future and projections down the line, which we'll talk more about later, but, you know, they're talking about anywhere between 200 million and a billion refugees by 2050 from climate change alone. It's just such a unstoppable, crushing wave of people and just terrible consequences of that. One more quick example that I'll give uh, that's really pertinent right now around migration is what's happening between Poland and Belarus. And the reason I want to bring this one up is because there's a very interesting dynamic that this shows, and that is of 
refugees being used as a political weapon. So I won't get into like super detail about about what's going on there, but Belarus is a dictatorship and their dictator, Lukashenko, has basically invited refugees into Belarus and basically offered to help them get into Europe. Well, to get into Europe, they have to go through Poland and Belarus and Poland share a border. But of course, Poland has not agreed to this deal. So Belarus is pretty much making this promise to these refugees that they can't keep. But Lukashenko knows that he's able to basically destabilize Poland by creating this humanitarian crisis on their border and trying to make Poland look awful for not accepting all these refugees. And the poor refugees that are in the middle of all this basically just being used as weapon or bait or whatever for this proxy war. And unfortunately, there have been some clashes and skirmishes and, and things like that over the last couple of months on this border as people are trying to get across. Poland has been breaking international law by once they catch a lot of these immigrants, they're actually immediately pushing them back over the border. So they're just dropping them back off in Belarus, which is not supposed to be allowed. But it's this very ugly thing that's creating a lot of tension between those two countries. And it has wider reaching geopolitical implications as well. Um, one resident there in Poland said, they turned a humanitarian crisis into just a political conflict. And while this is on a rather small scale now, you can imagine the types of political conflicts that could arise from mass migrations in the future and how those immigrants can actually be weaponized. And hearing that just highlights how complex these issues are and the implications are so far reaching and so detrimental, especially as nations grapple with how to handle these situations. And in some cases, like what you're talking about here, what are already terrible situations are then weaponized. And the scale, like you said, is so small compared to what's anticipated for the future. So shifting then towards the future, you know, when I've thought about the future of mass migrations in the past, I've thought about it as, you know, the years 2030 to maybe 2060, those are going to be really bad years because of climate. It's going to cause a lot of migrations. And while I think that's true, I think I sorely underestimated the potential impact of mass migrations just in the next three to 10 years in this decade. There is a report that comes out every year. It's called the GRPS, and that stands for the Global Risks Perceptions Report. This is done by the World Economic Forum, and it's basically meant to discover what are the risks that the world faces in the coming years and decade. This survey is taken by a thousand experts from different fields around the world, some in business, some in politics, some in other areas, NGOs and things like that. And they're, they're just asked a series of questions around what they feel are the biggest risks. And in the 2022 survey, one of the five highest rated risks according to this survey, was mass migration. And there's a whole section in the report on it. They go into some detail about the fears for the, the coming, just even the next two or three years, but especially into into the, the latter part of the decade, about why that fear is so great and what the risks are. And so I'm just going to read a couple portions from this report. It says, as 2022 begins... COVID-19 and its economic and societal consequences continue to pose a critical threat to the world. Vaccine inequality and a resultant uneven economic recovery risk compounding social fractures and geopolitical tensions. In the poorest 52 countries, home to 20% of the world's people, 
only 6% of the population had been vaccinated by the time of this writing. By 2024, developing economies excluding China will have fallen 5.5% below their pre-pandemic expected GDP growth, while advanced economies will have surpassed it by 0.9%, widening the global income gap. The resulting global divergence will create tensions within and across borders that risk worsening the pandemic's cascading impacts and complicating the coordination needed to tackle common challenges including strengthening climate action, enhancing digital safety, restoring livelihoods, and social cohesion, and others. One thing that was really interesting here is this idea of widening wealth gaps, which is something we've talked about a lot, but not just within countries, but between them. And I hadn't really ever thought about that a whole lot, that you know some countries will succeed economically in the coming decades compared to other countries that will fail and fall further behind. And there will be this increased pressure for migration as people try to flee impoverished areas for opportunities in wealthier countries. You know, when we think about the wealth gap or inequality, we often just think about it, you know, the 1% versus the 99%, but not as often do we think about it in terms of entire countries. And because some countries' economies are struggling more than others under the COVID pandemic, while others might be more resilient um, it's just going to increase the need for migrations. And I really like this report because so often I find that my thoughts around mass migration are sort of vague. Like, oh yes, there will be so many climate catastrophes and increased geopolitical tensions and, and thinking, yeah, that's going to cause mass migration. But this is giving very specific examples of the risks faced and how even just things happening right now, like COVID-19, are likely to highly exacerbate mass migrations in the future. It goes on to say that asked to take a view of the past two years, respondents to the GRPS perceive societal risks in the form of social cohesion erosion, livelihood crises, and mental health deterioration. So all things that we've talked about here as those that have worsened the most since the pandemic began. Only 16% of respondents feel positive and optimistic about the outlook for the world, and just 11% believe the global recovery will accelerate. Most respondents instead expect the next three years to be characterized by either consistent volatility and multiple surprises or fractured trajectories that will separate relative winners and losers. For the next five years, respondents again signal societal and environmental risks as the most concerning. However, over a 10-year horizon, the health of the planet dominates concerns. Environmental risks are perceived to be the five most critical long-term threats to the world. It also included a question on international risk mitigation efforts, and migration and refugees was listed as one of the areas where most respondents believe the current state of risk mitigation efforts fall short of the challenge. That is, efforts are not started or are in early development. So basically, these respondents are saying, we don't think we are anywhere near capable of dealing with migration and refugees as what is needed here in just the next decade. I think I'm with you in that I typically think of issues with mass migrations being something that we'll have to worry about decades from now, but I don't think about the near future. And some of the timelines you're talking about are extremely alarming in my mind. Right? We're talking about in just the coming years, uh, some of the huge impacts that we'll see. 
Yeah, just to continue on with a few things from the report, it mentioned that disparities that were already challenging societies are now expected to widen. 51 million more people are projected to live in extreme poverty compared to the pre-pandemic trend, at the risk of increasing polarization and resentment within societies. At the same time, domestic pressures risk stronger national interest postures and worsening fractures in the global economy that will come at the expense of foreign aid and cooperation. And so the report talks a lot about how, you know, right now, some of the wealthier countries that give so much foreign aid to countries in need are pulling back on that foreign aid during the pandemic in order to fund their own bailouts and and recovery. So you've got poor countries that already rely on humanitarian efforts. And as those humanitarian efforts decrease, you've got tens of millions of people in worsening conditions and worsening poverty which again can exacerbate, you know, unrest, political tensions, cause uprisings, civil wars, violence, and therefore people to flee. And even if there's not an increase in violence, just the fact that there is an increase in poverty gives people more of an incentive to try and leave to find better opportunity elsewhere. Reading from the report again, it says growing insecurity resulting from economic hardship, intensifying impacts of climate change, and political instability are already forcing millions to leave their homes in search of a better future abroad. Involuntary migration is a long-term concern for GRPS respondents, while 60% of them see migration and refugees as an area where international mitigation efforts have not started or in early development. In 2020, there were over 34 million people displaced abroad globally from conflict alone, a historical high. However, in many countries, the lingering effects of the pandemic, increased economic protectionism, and new labor market dynamics are resulting in higher barriers to entry for migrants who might seek opportunity or refuge. These higher barriers to migration and their spillover effect on remittances, a critical lifeline for some developing countries, risk precluding a potential pathway to restoring livelihoods, maintaining political stability, and closing income and labor gaps. So this was really interesting. A couple things here. They're saying that barriers are increasing. So what Kellen talked about at the beginning, this idea of the bureaucracy around how many people do we let in, who do we decide to let in, and how do we decide to let them in, um, those are increasing. The report noted that some immigration is actually really good and really important for many countries, especially countries who are receiving those migrants. You know, in the US, for example, a significant portion of like agriculture comes from um, Hispanic workers who fill a very important role there. And likewise, it talks about remittances and how, you know, migrants are able to come to certain countries, make a lot of money and send that money back to their host country, to their families there. And that's actually a huge economic factor in a lot of these poorer countries. And so when you take that away, you're taking away from your own labor market. You're also taking away from those remittances being sent back and it can cause an imbalance. It says, at the time of writing, the United States faced over 11 million unfilled jobs in general and the European Union had a deficit of 400,000 drivers just in the trucking industry. In the most extreme cases, humanitarian crises will worsen since vulnerable groups have no choice but to embark on more dangerous journeys. Migration pressures will also exacerbate international tensions as it is increasingly used as a geopolitical instrument, as we just talked about with Poland and Belarus. Destination country governments will have to manage diplomatic relationships and immigrant skepticism among their populations. So it goes back to the idea of of populism and xenophobia, of nationalism, and the increase of this ideology that 
we have to keep all foreigners out, right? We're seeing that some in the US, we're seeing that a lot in European countries. If everybody closes down their borders and says, we will take care of nobody but our own, um, what, what happens with all of those forced migrants that have to have somewhere to go? And this next point goes directly back to what you talked about at the beginning. It says, worsening extreme weather will trigger large-scale migration and displacement, but the international community's reluctance to recognize climate refugees and environmental migrants is widening their legal protection gap. Legislative and governance frameworks remain ill-equipped to protect millions at risk of displacement who do not qualify as traditional refugees. So, you know, these countries, the U.S. included, is able to just kind of wash their hands of it and say, well, you don't qualify for refugee status because you're not the victim of some political crime or violence. Um, doesn't matter that they're the victim of a wet bulb temperatures that's about to render their home country uninhabitable. We just don't have a place for you and you don't qualify. I'm sorry. And if people can't leave their country legally or enter other countries legally, they are going to do it illegally. And like the report mentioned earlier, they're going to embark on more dangerous journeys in order to provide for their families. And the more desperate that refugees get, not only the more dangerous treks are they willing to take, but the more violence they're willing to partake in in order to provide that safety for themselves. The, the report also talks about economic issues, how the pandemic has diminished external financing to developing countries by 700 billion US dollars, which is the equivalent to the combined GDPs of 36 of the world's poorest economies. So just this massive shift in wealth and income. Um, it talks about different economic, humanitarian, and geopolitical consequences. And the last thing that I'll mention here is that it says that in destination countries, so where people are immigrating to, growing extremism could create greater challenges for migrants trying to assimilate. Citizens could also see their civil liberties violated by governments using migration management to justify widespread population surveillance and intrusions on personal information. And this is huge. In one of our early episodes, we talked about the extremes that governments will go to to protect their people, and especially to maintain political power. We talked about genocides, we talked about authoritarianism, fascism, populism. So as, as leaders will do everything they can to maintain power, and when immigration is knocking at the door, threatening that sense of nationalism and threatening the economy and, and things like that, I do expect, and according to this report, they also expect for there to be an increase in crackdown of leaders of countries, not just on the migrants at the border, but on their own people and the civil liberties that are taken away as they sort of put forth those efforts to keep control of the situation. I think you've done such a good job of painting the picture of just what an extreme problem this is. And there are so many implications of it. You know, one that you mentioned that I hadn't really thought about is just how costly it is, you know, the economic impact. And with those kind of major disruptions to the system of, of any country that's trying to accept a bunch of immigrants, it plays into catabolic collapse, where the whole reason people are fleeing from countries is because there are climate issues. There's drought and famine and flooding and wildfires. There are political tensions and violence and infrastructure failure and all these things that require capital, require cost. And at the same time, those mass migrations themselves require this huge cost and we just can't afford it. You know, one of the questions that people might have as they look at how detrimental mass migrations 
are likely to be is what is the scale that we're talking about here long term? As we look not just over the next 10, 20 years, but project out to the end of the century, what kind of numbers are we talking about? How many people are going to be displaced? And when it comes to those numbers, let's just be clear that it's all a guess. There are so many models that try to account for as many factors as possible, but they have to make assumptions within a huge range of certainty. And so I'm actually amazed at how many reports there are. You mentioned this report that you kept citing from. I'm looking at one from just a few months ago from the White House entitled Report on the Impact of Climate Change on Migration. And even though it's focused on climate change, some of the subheadings are like geopolitical implications, the global political, economic, and security dynamics of climate-related migration, or a sub-subheading that says the relationship between climate change, migration, and conflict. And so there is recognition that it's not just about like, hey, I've experienced an extreme weather event, and so I need to leave where I live. There are all those other implications that you talked about. And when something is that complex, you really can't predict it. Especially the further out you get into the future, the less likely you can be. So if you were trying to predict how many people would be displaced by 2100, well, how many people do you think will be on the planet by 2100? And and how many people do you think will have gravitated to big urban areas? Or what adaptive technologies will have been implemented or not implemented? And where will people go? And, and, and you know, what's the threshold of motives that will actually get somebody to move? How do you measure or predict? A, a future person's attachment to their hometown or their level of resilience to a natural disaster, all those things are just assumptions. And, and that's why I say it's really just a guess. Yet at the same time, there are so many reports. I saw some from like the UN's International Organization for Migration. I saw reports from various universities and institutions. And many of them say that something like 1 to 1.2 billion people will be displaced by mid-century, right? So we're talking about 2050. To me, it's just crazy. That's only 28 years away. And then when they talk about 2100, they're saying 2 billion. And that is just from climate change. So let's say it's not that extreme. If we look at the much more conservative models, you know, on the low end, they're saying by mid-century 200 million people. And again, who knows, maybe they're way off. Maybe it'll only be 25 million. But think about 25 million people being displaced. I mean, I, th I think that's unrealistically low based on how many people are already being displaced. But consider a couple things. For example, if we just talk about sea level rise and storm surges, 230 million people live less than a meter above high tide levels. And a billion people live less than 10 meters above high tide levels. So how many of those people will have such frequent floods that they can't maintain a reasonable lifestyle? You know, you might have some town that has 20 years until it's completely underwater or it has to be abandoned to encroaching waves. But the people aren't all going to leave right at once. It's going to be this constant trickle as more and more homes become inhabitable, as infrastructure fails, as people run out of clean water. So you think about that's just sea level and storm surges, right? People in those coastal areas, we're not even factoring in all the natural disasters in other areas, food shortages, water supplies, political conflict, energy shortages, disease, infrastructure failure. And you know, there are some like islands right now where 
they are extremely vulnerable to rising sea levels. More and more of these villages and towns are becoming underwater. And yet there are people there that are saying, we're not going to go anywhere. Like, this is our home. This is where our ancestors lived. This is where we want to be long term. We just got to figure out how to make it work. And so maybe some people will be able to adapt, but some people will stay in certain areas and die. You know, I think about when like a big hurricane is coming to a certain part of the U.S. and there are all these evacuation warnings and there are always people that ignore it and say, no, I'm going to stay right where I'm at. And oftentimes in those cases, people that stick around die. So you get some people that adapt, some people that stay and die, a lot of people that have to leave. Long story short, we're talking about a huge scale, something so completely unprecedented in the number of people that will be displaced from their homes for a variety of reasons, but even just talking about climate change that I don't see how our society can possibly handle it. Yeah, me neither. The only thing scarier than being in a community that doesn't have enough to take care of itself is to be in a community that doesn't have enough to take care of itself and then have the size of your community double from people who need your help. Or maybe even scarier is being forced to leave that community and go find another that doesn't want you there either. Like I said, it is a lose-lose situation. And I hope that at no point during this episode did we come across as incompassionate, not compassionate to refugees. There is a high likelihood that any one of us could become a refugee at some point during our lives. I have a huge amount of compassion for people who are forced to make a choice to leave their community, their homes, their families, the things that they love, the places that they, that they love in order to survive. I know that it's a politically charged topic. There's a lot of opinions on it. As I already stated, I don't pretend to have the answer to that. I don't know what the answer is. And again, that's why it's such a scary thing for me to think about. And this is one of those big areas in which resiliency is so important. You know, resiliency as a community to help make sure that you are not one of the many that will become a climate refugee in the future. And also to make sure to prepare yourself for the need to. Are you mobile? You know, are you able to get up and go and continue a healthy lifestyle by leaving? Can you do that safely? Or if you stay, can you handle the impact of having a large increase in, in the number of people around you and in your area? That's a tough topic and there's a lot to it, but it is something that I think is important to consider as it's going to become a reality for most of us in the coming decades. You know, I sure hope that I have the strength of character throughout all of this to look outside of myself and be compassionate, find opportunities to help people that are in a worse situation than I am. If everybody listening to this podcast were to take some steps to make themselves more resilient, I would be overjoyed. That would feel like such a significant and meaningful impact. But I think I'd be even happier if somehow I knew that everybody listening to this podcast chose to do a little bit more to help other people as we face the oncoming struggles. And like you mentioned, Corey, if anybody needs help, like what a, what a tragic situation to be somebody who's maybe had your home destroyed or you just have to leave your home behind. Maybe your currency means nothing. Your life savings is all of a sudden gone. You have to take yourself, potentially your family through awful conditions to reach a country where everyone speaks a different language. And generally speaking, people don't want to help you like that. It sounds so terrible. And so if you if you are looking for people to lend a helping hand to, it seems like that's the right place to start. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.